0: Let's work together to help keep Victoria safe. This is the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast.
2: Welcome to the Crimestoppers Victoria podcast. My name is Lexi Junowick. This week is Scams Awareness Week and the theme this year is Let's Talk Scams. Here at Crimestoppers Victoria, we are aware of so many scams and unfortunately hear about so many people who fall prey to them. Today, I'm sitting down with two experts in the field who do a lot of work behind the scenes, not only investigating scams, but also working to prevent people from becoming victims. My first guest is Detective Superintendent Jane Welsh from Victoria Police's Cybercrime Division. Joining her is Scott Wall, the Chief Information Officer at Bank Vic. A very warm welcome to you both. Now, before we delve into the complex world of scams, let's find out a little bit more about the two of you. Starting off with Jane, how did you find yourself heading up the cybercrime division?
3: I found myself here at cybercrime division. After many years in policing, I returned to the crime command and I was gifted the opportunity to work in this really, really fascinating uh, space. Uh, we're seeing an increasing incidence of harm across the community in relation to the way criminals are using technology as a force multiplier for crime. So uh, we're growing our capability in this area and I'm, I'm really, really proud to be uh, building capability with Victoria Police and our partners. Wonderful. And how about you, Scott? What led you to the role of Chief
2: Information Officer at BankVic?
1: I've been in uh, technology for far too long, working in banks around the world. So here at BankVic for the last five years, and before that at ANZ Bank in Melbourne, and then before that in the UK for a large number of big institutions. My remit covers both all the technology that delivers banking services, but it also covers information and cybersecurity. Obviously, big concerns for banking and big concerns for our members.
2: Fantastic. Now, we know that there are so many scams in the world, but we're going to dive into four today. Now, the first we're going to look into is phishing scams. And just to be clear, that's spelt with a P-H. This type of scam was reported more than 40,000 times in 2020, a 75% spike from the previous year. Scott, can you talk us through what phishing scams are?
1: It's to do with the concept of fishing. You throw a, a hook out there and hope that a fish will come along and bite. So you have these um, cyber criminals who send out hundreds of thousands of emails or text messages, or even make phone calls, hoping that a fish will bite, that somebody will take the bait. So these emails arrive, they look like they're genuine, they look like they come from a company that you may have dealt with or heard of, but you have to be very careful because it's too easy to mock up an email and make it look like it comes from a genuine organization, where in fact, it's being generated in vast numbers by cyber criminals who could be anywhere in the world.
2: Now, I unfortunately hear that Bank Vic fell victim to this type of scam, Scott.
1: We are constantly getting bombarded with both phishing attempts, but also a variant which is whaling. And that's where the email purports to come from, say, the CEO or the CFO. We had one example a couple of years ago where some of our members contacted us to say that they were receiving emails saying it was from Bank Vic, asking them to log in and change information in their bank account through internet banking when we investigated this link took them to a mock bankvic internet banking site that was actually running on a server in a hospital in thailand so we reached out to this hospital luckily we had a thai speaking person in the company and it turns out they were not even aware that this fake site was running on one of their servers and luckily that got taken down but that's the sort of links that people will go to to extort money or get access to your security credentials So you must look really long and hard at those emails and think, would my bank send this to me? Would they ask me to do this? Scott,
2: for you, was it shocking that a particular kind of criminal would go to this extent to get into Bankfic? Even though you're in the industry, does it come as a surprise to you?
1: Not at all. This is the easiest way to earn money. It's almost impossible to catch these people because they live in places which don't have extradition agreements, or it's just extremely hard to find them on the internet. You don't know who the other person is, and if they're technically capable, they can very easily convince you that they are somebody they're not, and it's easy money. Once they've got your internet banking credentials, they log in as you, and they transfer the money. Luckily, we do have a lot of controls around this, so it's not quite as scary and dangerous as it sounds, but people must be very careful about anything which doesn't look like it's genuinely something that your bank would ask you to do.
2: Now, I'm going to bring in Jane here. What's your take on phishing scams? And can you perhaps shed a bit of light on what business email compromise scams are?
3: Business email compromise scams are really increasing. We're seeing a lot more of them than we have done in the past. And to put it most simply, people or criminals hack into the business system of certain companies And they use their emails to entice other people to divert funds to other places. So, for example, they might replace the legitimate bank account numbers with the criminal's bank account number. And all of a sudden, these emails that look, for all intents and purposes, really legitimate are, in fact, a means by which criminals can divert payments. They're really effective. And as Scott points out, it is a very profitable crime to be involved with, but it is not impossible to identify, locate and prosecute these people. Victoria Police, with other state and territory law enforcement, plus our Australian Federal Police and our international partners, work very, very very hard to sharpen our collaborative response to this. We're seeing a lot more success than we have done in the past. And we're becoming really, really good at providing a law enforcement response to this sort of offending. And is it the really big businesses that are being targeted or is it small
2: kind of mum and dad kind of businesses at home that might have started up, say, an online store amid the
3: pandemic? Unfortunately, Lexi, there is no one who is outside the purview of these criminals. Businesses big and small are vulnerable uh, to this sort of offending.
2: As you said, it is very difficult to find who is responsible. But in terms of what the person at home can do or the business can do, Scott, what are kind of maybe three or five tips that people can take to prevent this kind of scam?
1: First thing is just use common sense. Is this an email that you expect? Have you seen one before? Is this the sort of thing that the organization that it says it comes from would be expected to ask you? And then have a look at that email. Does the name that it says it's coming from match the underlying email address? Now, that's a dead giveaway. When the name is John Smith, and then you look at the underlying email address and it's somebody's Gmail account, that sounds like that account has been either set up specifically to do phishing emails or somebody has had their account taken over, which is also very common, unfortunately check the spelling and punctuation. A lot of these cyber criminals, English is not their first language. And historically, at least the the spelling and punctuation has been pretty terrible, which is a bit of a dead giveaway. Unfortunately, they are getting a lot better. And then check the quality of images and the email signature. Often you'll see emails from Microsoft saying, this is Microsoft, you need to click on this link to download an email or to change your password don't do it. Check with your IT department if you're at work or to go directly to the organization that you work for and ask them to investigate as well. But just check the quality of the text, and the images, check that the, the little footer at the bottom of the email looks correct. So it's really just, does it smell right? If it doesn't look right, it probably isn't.
2: Now, bringing you into our second scam, it's an older one that we have heard about before in the media and in news, but it certainly hasn't lost any of its relevancy in 2021, where we find ourselves today as people increasingly go online to find love. Jane, how are cyber criminals using dating sites to attract victims?
3: Lexi, these are really quite distressing forms of offending, not just for the people who fall victim, but for their families and the community more generally. There are various ways of conducting this sort of trickery and deceit One example might be that a criminal will befriend somebody on one of these dating sites. They will portray themselves to be someone who is in desperate need, perhaps someone who is looking for support, and initially it will be a reasonably benign support, uh, emotional support, and someone who can help them work through a problem in their life, for example. And what that's actually doing is they're building rapport and building trust with the person on that dating site. And then it inevitably leads to a request for money and that might be a request for money to help them out of the predicament that they've been explaining. And um, it's very common and it is a, a really quite a ruthless way to solicit money from people.
2: Do you find because of the emotional aspect of this kind of scam that the victims are less likely to speak out about it because
3: they might feel embarrassed or ashamed? I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think police and and the community need to speak about this more openly and allow people to understand that this is about trickery and deceit. It's not about them. And it doesn't mean that they're any sort of a person because they fell victim to this deceit. And we can all be vulnerable to this from time to time. Absolutely.
2: Another term that I've heard in this realm of online dating and scams is sex extortion. Can you explain a bit about what that is?
3: Sextortion is similar but far more threatening in many ways. So what the offenders will do once again they will build rapport with these people and then very quickly the victim will find themselves subject of a threat and it comes in the form of the offender saying I have sexually explicit images of you which I will release to your friends or to the public if you don't provide me with and it is normally money. And most often, although it's very difficult for victims to contemplate this, they do not have those images at all. It's very much a threat. And leveraging off our feelings of vulnerability, uh, where we feel we might be exposed in in a really traumatic ways.
2: Are people powerless against this kind of scam? And, And what can be done if you find yourself in this really awful position?
3: We're absolutely not powerless at all. We very much have the power, in fact, although it frequently doesn't feel that way. And I think, in a lot of ways, really owning the power in these situations is asking yourself in a really calm way is this reasonable? Do I really have images out there like that? Why would somebody be doing this to me? And I think it's about giving yourself an opportunity to think very clearly about these things and understanding if we can't do that in a heightened state ask a friend, stop doing what you're doing, walk away from your device and ask a trusted friend. And it's very often that these trusted friends can give us a level of objectivity that sometimes we can't find ourselves when we're really in the thick of it. If you or someone you know has been targeted by
2: image-based abuse or revenge porn, there is help available. In fact, the Australian eSafety Commissioner will work to get the image removed. Often this can happen within 24 hours. You can report the image or video to the Australian eSafety Commissioner by visiting eSafety.gov.au. There you'll also find more information about how to handle sextortion attempts and abuse sent via email or text. You can also find these links on the store Victoria website at CrimestoppersVic.com.au forward slash podcast
0: this is the crime stoppers Victoria podcast
2: now interest rates being so low at the moment people are looking for better returns for their money quick Google search and you're likely to be shown many more investment opportunities, and not all of them are legitimate. Australians lost more than $328 in investment scams last year, and that's what we know of. Now, Scott, this is a field that I'm sure you've got quite a bit of expertise, so I'm very interested in picking your brains on this. What advice do you have for investors, um, particularly people investing online for the first time?
1: I think there's the old adage, anything that sounds too good to be true probably is. If the offer looks too tempting, too easy, uh, the rewards are too much above market rates, then you have to ask yourself, how is this person able to offer this? It's either breaking the law, if it is a an actual offer, or it doesn't exist at all and they're just looking to steal your money. If you're even the slightest bit unsure, ask people, ask friends, family, work colleagues, ask people that you think might have a view on this sort of thing and just see what they think. Because remember, with all of us sitting at home for long periods of the day, often by ourselves, we're lonely, we're bored, we've got too much time on our hands, and we're a little bit depressed. And suddenly this idea that you might make a lot of money for very little outlay or very little risk becomes extremely appealing. But just ask yourself, is this too good to be true? Because it probably is. And who can I ask to check whether this is real? And if they provide links to their website, et cetera, don't trust that website because remember, they have complete control over the content. So they can write whatever they like about how wonderful this product is. Do a little bit of research yourself. And when you are doing a Google search, don't rely on anything which has the word "ad" next to it because that's a paid search result and therefore may not be unbiased or representative.
2: That is really interesting, um, you point out with the ad that you do see pop up when you you are looking for a Google search. Or would you like to see some sort of change made in terms of Google being able to legitimise that or, or or something along those lines?
1: I think that would be quite challenging, although I, I think the ACCC is looking into that as we speak in terms of how the big tech companies generate their income and some of their activities and, and practices. However, I think it still comes down to the individual to take responsibility for their actions and what they do. If you are looking to do research on companies or websites, then use sites that you're familiar with that are well-established. Magazine sites are quite good if you're looking at products. So if somebody's offering you a fantastic product, which sounds too good to be true, do some research and see what um, the consumer um, sites think of it. Look at the comparison sites. These ones are not 100% perfect because obviously they do get paid for what they do, but they're less likely to be um, joining with the scammer to try and sell something to you or or to extort or steal your money.
2: And how reliable um, would you say those review sites are?
1: If you read a small print, you often find that they only have a certain number of mortgage providers in the industry that they cover and they are getting paid for any recommendations. So unless they're a a not-for-profit or a non-profit or they're a government body, then they are commercial and therefore they do need to make money. Mm -hmm. So always keep that in mind.
2: Now, criminals aren't just after our money online. Worryingly, they're also after our identity, which is particularly frightening. What use is our ID to cybercriminals, Jane? Incredibly
3: helpful for the criminal element because they allow them to open bank accounts and other, other means to uh, commit crimes, various crimes, not just profit-motivated crimes, but other sorts of crimes also. So if they can create a false identity, all of a sudden they, they can create a whole different entity, uh, which they can lay off a lot of their offending to. So it's incredibly valuable for offenders to have a raft of different identities or different identity items that allow them to pull together to create another fake human being. We see a lot of these... Uh, websites on the dark web, particularly that provide parcels of identities for sale. Uh, So it's a high profit, high margin activity. And it's really, really important that we keep that in mind when we're thinking about what sort of information we put onto sites to do simple things like purchase online, which we are all very, very fond of doing in the recent 12 to 24 months. It's kind
2: of an interesting one because you think if I was walking down the street and someone came up to me and said, hand over your passport, ID, all of that kind of stuff, you'd you know fight them off or run away or do something like that. How are people lured into handing over all of this identity online or, or do they do it without even really thinking about it?
3: Interestingly, Lexi, it's a bit of both. And for some reason, we seem to be considering providing our identity or parts of our identity online as being more secure than providing it to that person who approaches you in the street. It's misleading. And I think in a lot of ways, it's really just one of the things that make us very human because we're fallible. So it's it's about us understanding what the threat is online but understanding it in such a way that allows us to still engage in the activities that we would like to online, but to do it more safely. Mm, Absolutely. And what kind of tips would you offer up, Jane? The very first one in relation to identity is to ask yourself, why are they asking? Do I really need to be providing my license number if I want to buy a pair of shoes? Or my passport number. How is that possibly relevant? Uh, And the other thing is these criminals tend to create a sense of urgency. So we think, oh, my goodness, if I don't do this now, I will miss out on this wonderful opportunity. This sense of urgency creates in us less of a willingness to pause, step away and ask ourselves, is this really the right question? Should I really be engaging here? So it's about fighting that urge to be drawn in by the sense of urgency, because by not doing that, we are robbing ourselves of opportunities to be way more diligent and ask many more questions that we need the answers to to stay safe. How about you, Scott? Do
2: you have any particular tips with identities and and how you can protect them?
1: Yeah. I mean, as the Chief Information Officer of Bank Vic, I don't actually worry too much about having money stolen, which seems strange. Sounds ironic. Yeah. I'm far more concerned about losing the data that we hold about our members because you can replace money. You know, If somebody has money stolen from them, either the bank can replace it if it's a genuine crime and the person did everything that could be expected, or the merchant where they did the transaction will refund it through the bank because they didn't do enough on the security checking. But once your information is gone, Not only is it never coming back in terms of the public domain not having access to it, but it can be replicated millions and millions of times. And you could find that your identity was used in hundreds of different ways by hundreds of different criminals. So it's a lot worse than losing money. And I think further to what Jane was saying, always ask yourself, why are they asking for that? And always set the minimum data sharing required to do any action. Am I really willing to have my documents, such as my passport and my uh, driver's license out there? Because once they're out there, you can't retrieve them without having to go through the process of cancelling your driver's license or cancelling your passport and getting a new one. But your date of birth a tough one. Can't change that. Your full name, very difficult to change that one and probably not something everybody wants to do. So minimize the information you share and make sure that you share it with organizations or people or institutions that you really, really do trust. Is
2: that just on sites or is that, should people be kind of aware of what they're you know, doing on social media as well? Does it go as far as that?
1: hundred percent. I'm amazed at what people share on social media. And what the criminals will do is they will take information that they get from you through maybe a a website or even a phone call and they can get some information out of you. They can then combine that with what they're seeing on your social media postings and they can build an even more detailed picture of you to become even more compelling when they try to set you up as a fake person. Or they'll then try and contact your bank to convince your bank that they've just forgotten their password and they know all this information, that I must be the person that I'm saying I am. And we spend a lot of time making sure that the questions we ask to guarantee your identity are going to stop a lot of that sort of activity. But it becomes harder and harder the more people share more and more of their information.
2: Jane, in terms of social media, I automatically think of the younger generation sharing so freely their lives. But do you see really
3: all ages
2: uploading potentially really vulnerable information online that, Could put them at risk.
3: Lexi, it's across the board. Uh, We have saying for a long time this younger generation sharing too much, but it's not unique to them at all. As time goes on, we're seeing this sharing of information and dropping our defensive barriers across all generations and age groups. If we are using uh, social media of any description, or if we are using uh, the internet to engage in any banking or purchasing or any of those sorts of activities, it's really part of engaging there is understanding what the risks are and what we need to do to stay safe and where we need to go to get more information about those sorts of things.
2: Definitely. Now,
3: With scams,
2: it really is Pandora's box in terms of how many there are out there. We've covered four today. I'd be interested to hear why you both think people aren't taking the steps to protect themselves online, despite all the information um, that is available out there. Do you think it's a case of the relaxed Aussie approach? she will be right, mate, leading us into
1: trouble. I think it's probably more that we're so used to getting so much value from the internet, generally for free. And a lot of those free offerings are actually based on us sharing information. Uh, I think the comment that's been made several times is, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And if you look at Google, you can go on to Google Search, you can go on to Google Maps, you can use the Google Android phone. Essentially, you're getting vast amounts of value from Google, but you're not paying them directly. Because what happens is they're grabbing your data, your information, and then they're selling it to third parties. So I think we've got so used to the convenience and free services, forgetting that it's actually being paid for with our information, which has been packaged up and sold to marketers, that we just got used to it. And and we just expect to hand over information to get services. So we unfortunately have been trained over the last 10 years or so to give up information when asked to.
3: I agree with Scott most definitely. I think also there's very little immediacy in feeling the harm of many of these crimes. The harm is is delayed on many occasions and sometimes when it comes to the theft or appropriation of your identity, you actually may not realise that for months and months and months. It is probably one of the other reasons uh, that people aren't taking the steps uh, that they need to and making themselves as informed as they need be. But I must say, I feel the winds are changing somewhat and people are taking more notice of what needs to be done and where they need to go to get the information. But I think it's really important for law enforcement and, and other sorts of areas to really firmly get on the front foot and allow the community to know where the threats are.
2: What do you think is driving this kind of desire for people to know more about online safety and perhaps start implementing those changes? Is it a particular person? Do you think it's just awakening of this generation having, you know, seen so many stories and, and horror stories?
3: I think we all suffered very much from this will never happen to me and that doesn't do as well with the assessment of risk anywhere. So I think that the more we can urge people who have found themselves falling victim to this, the the more we can urge them to speak about this so the community can see themselves through those experiences. I think that will be really important.
2: Definitely. Now,
3: it's no secret
2: the world we find ourselves in in this current day is a lot different to two years ago. What impact have you seen the COVID-19 pandemic have on how people are being targeted online?
3: It is a perfect environment for online offending at the moment. We have people who are confined to their homes. Uh, We have families who are stuck, not always indoors, but for the greater part of the day they are indoors, uh, looking for things to do. The internet provides us with what feels like infinite opportunities to engage and explore and probably most importantly have our attention drawn 100% of the time. And I think that coupled with increasing feelings of anxiety and perhaps feeling a little separated and alone makes us particularly vulnerable to people reaching out, asking us to do things that we probably wouldn't otherwise do so I think that uh, that is a really important part of us being really self-aware of the context within which we're working and engaging with the internet. And the numbers, just the raw data has shown us just how at risk we are during these lockdown periods particularly. Mm. And I think that we need to operate online with that very much held in mind all the time.
2: Definitely. Scott, in terms of what you've seen, have you seen an increase of you know customers being targeted?
1: Yeah, I, I think People know that you're going to be at home, so you get scams of people ringing you at home, whereas you know, nine to five, you're not normally at home. So there's a lot more of those sort of old-school phone call scams, the, the recorded message saying the ATO is going to take you to court if you don't uh, contact and those sorts of things. And those are all you know, criminals trying to extort money from you. The number of phishing emails we're seeing, both hitting our staff at work and just personally at home, is rocketing, and people are becoming so used to now getting most services through the internet and online. More and more services are being offered and some of those services aren't legitimate. So I think we're we're seeing a ramp up in adoption of e-commerce in Australia. That's gone through the roof over the last couple of years. And therefore people are willing to buy more products and quite unusual products online, whereas historically they would have gone to the shops to buy those. So big ramp up in e-commerce, people stuck at home, lonely, bored, and falling prey to these very clever Very focused um, cyber criminals.
2: In terms of if you do fall victim to maybe an e-commerce scam, is it really difficult for people to get their money back?
1: It's a tough question. It depends. The biggest uh, fraud that happens in Australia really is card not present. So somebody using their card to purchase something or somebody else using their card details to purchase something for them. So don't let e-commerce sites keep your card details on record to make the experience easier next time because even if they are trustworthy, they could well be compromised by a hacker. And then your card details are out there. And the first thing you'll know is when either your bank rings you up and says, strange behavior on your uh, credit card account, or your invoices come home. So it's difficult to say people don't use online purchases, but again, use trusted sites, If you do think something suspicious, contact your bank straight away and your bank will do everything that we can to protect you both using technology to identify problems before you're even aware, but also to help you recover funds if you are the victim of a crime. And as long as everybody in the value chain or the payments chain is following the rules and regulation, then most people will never have a problem. And if they do have a problem, their bank will sort it out for them.
2: Jane, from your perspective, if people do find themselves, you know, a victim of identity theft,
3: what do they do? Do they report it to the police, whether that be by way of phone call or going to your nearest police station? We'd also ask them to place a report on Report Cyber, which is a national reporting platform, and contact your bank, Um, but probably not in that order, probably bank first.
2: What kind of work is Victoria Police doing behind the
3: scenes? We understand that one of the greatest ways to defend ourselves and and frankly launch attacks against these sorts of crimes is by working collaboratively with our partners. There is no one law enforcement agency, there is no one industry or government that will be able to deal with this on its own. Uh, We have learned that, we understand that. So there's an enormous amount of effort going to create partners, build partnerships, build strategies and activities that go to support this across Government industry and law enforcement nationally and internationally. And we are finding that we're having really great success in that area, not just in identifying offenders, uh, but also to disrupt this sort of activity as well. And and I don't think it's any secret that police across the board are very active in a covert sense uh, online to try and disrupt this sort of activity. One of our main goals is to reduce instances of victimisation, to prevent the crimes happening. And we understand that this is very, very different to what law enforcement has been used to in the past. So to stop these sorts of crimes happening it will require us to engage and inform the community about A, the threat, and B, what their role is to stay safe. We will fulfil our role. Community also has a role. And of course, I'm a member of that community as well. So I have a role to keep myself safe as well. So that's really important for us. And we feel that that is a very much a priority at the moment.
2: Fantastic. Scott, in terms of your industry, what steps have you been taking to protect yourselves from these scammers?
1: So we spend quite a lot of money on protecting the bank systems from external hackers who would want to break in and steal not so much money, but but data information. But we also look how we can protect our member's And how we can protect their financial lives in terms of their use of payment mechanisms so we spend a lot of time and and money on systems which monitor payment activities and look for patterns and we use artificial intelligence behind the scenes to look for patterns of behavior which people could not spot because they're distributed across millions of transactions but also see where different types of behaviors are seen by one bank and then moving to other banks so we can get ahead of the scammers who are trying to extort money by stealing people's card details, et cetera. So we do a lot of things that the public and our members would never see. And then we do the stuff that they do see, which is, you know, ask for them to respond to SMS one-time passwords, or we contact them and ask them, is this something you actually are doing? Or did you know that this is happening? So we're very proactive in monitoring what's going on and looking for events which are anomalous, so not normal Behavior, either of a member or looking at where connections to internet banking are coming from. If it's coming from outside of Australia and you haven't told us you're on holiday, then we would definitely have a look at that. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes to improve the security of the use of payment methods and the transfer of money. It keeps us busy and it's a never ending war because the bad guys have got nothing else to do. It's 24 7 for them and they probably invest more money than us because they make money out of doing this, whereas we spend money to prevent losing money.
2: I know Jane spoke to a kind of team approach between different law enforcement agencies. Have you found Bankfic kind of teams up with other banks? Does that happen in your industry to kind of work against the common enemy, if you will?
1: Bankfic is a mutual bank, which means we're owned by our members. And we tend to deal and work very closely with the other mutual banks and credit unions in Australia. So I'll often um, be talking to my peers at other um, second tier banks talking about what we're doing to improve security, what sort of things that we're seeing going on. So there's a lot of knowledge sharing across the banks as well, both in security forums and on an individual one-to-one basis.
2: Wonderful. It's a question that piques my interest quite a bit. What does a typical scam look like? Is there a definition or a particular kind of age bracket that we're seeing that's, you know, the scammer or do either of you have an answer. I know it's a very open-ended question, but I'm just fascinated by by what is a typical scammer?
3: There is no typical scammer. We find that the scamming can be conducted by serious and organised crime groups, which is very sophisticated. They have a global reach, very, very organised. They use people to move money around. They use cryptocurrencies, very, very sophisticated, all the way through to individual people who may be trying out their hand at hacking or something of that nature. So it really knows no bounds and it is not a difficult thing to do, which is also not particularly helpful for law enforcements or the finance, financial industries and banks. So it runs the whole spectrum, Lexi.
1: You have got these very advanced cyber criminal groups. Some of them are semi-funded by nation states because they work on behalf of those states when they're not moonlighting for themselves. But the other big challenge is that historically, you have to be fairly technically capable to commit some of these cyber crimes. However, people are now earning money out of selling the tools to people to commit crime. So there's a whole ecosystem building up around the actual criminals by offering them services. So for instance, the ransomware wave that we've seen over the last couple of years where people's home PCs are encrypted and you have to buy bitcoin to pay them to unencrypt your photos of your kids Mm -hmm. there's actually call centers that have been set up to offer services to help people work out how to buy bitcoin to be able to pay the ransom to get their personal data back and those call centers the people there don't really think that they're criminals per se they're just offering a service and they often even do um, satisfaction surveys afterwards so it's a whole world out there that we don't see it's just kind of hidden away
2: In terms of penalties here in Australia, I can imagine they'd be very severe for people who get caught.
3: Absolutely, they are very severe. It's becoming more common to see people here in Australia charged. However, we are finding in Australia that many, many of the offenders are actually offshore, hence the necessity for us to work so closely with our national and international partners. Now, it's very clear
2: from speaking to you both that scams are really an ever-changing base that challenges even the most professional and expert in the field. If there was one simple piece of advice you could give to listeners before they log on, what would it be?
1: Use basic common sense. If it looks too good to be true, it pretty much always is too good to be true. And the other thing is look after your security credentials. Make sure that you have strong antivirus software installed. Make sure that it's been updated recently and choose passwords, which are highly difficult to guess.
2: Is there any secret when creating a password, any particular magic formula?
1: You should definitely have a strong password. More importantly, you shouldn't use the same password at different sites because if they compromise one site and therefore get your password, they can try all the other sites and they'll get in as well. So it's probably best to go with a phrase rather than a word. Don't use the names of family, pets uh, or variations on your own name. Use a phrase, for instance, the the quick brown, quick fox jumped over the lazy dog sort of phrase, something that's memorable. Don't use that same phrase for all your sites. So you need several phrases and and maybe those phrases can trigger your remembering which site it is and then mix up some of the case of some of the letters, change out some of the letters with numbers. So common things like an at replaces and A, those sorts of things, it just makes it much, much more difficult for software to guess what your passwords are.
2: Fantastic. I actually was reading somewhere that they recommended using a movie quote as a password. It would have to be a short one, but Jane, what would your movie quote password
3: be? Oh goodness. Uh, beam me up, perhaps.
2: That's a winner. Now, aside from gleaning some great password inspiration
3: from you, what would your simple piece of advice be? Be cautious but not concerned. I think that's the greatest message, apart from what Scott ha- has laid out, and they're really practical first necessary steps, passwords critical, antivirus critical, keeping it updated. I think the other thing it really is be informed, be interested. And that means when you're sitting down at breakfast, reading the paper online, pop in the search bar, tell me about scams what's the most recent scam. And it will be amazing and fascinating to see what comes up. These simple sorts of things only takes a couple of minutes, but it will give you really quick information about what is happening out there and what sorts of threats are are present and looming for people. And I think the other one is ask a trusted friend. They will be able to give you some objectivity that you may not otherwise have.
2: Wonderful. Well, I think you've both been absolutely invaluable with your information. And thank you so much, Jane and Scott, for joining me on the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast. So, what can you do if you're the victim of a scam? It's important to remember that you are not powerless or that you've made a foolish decision. There is detailed information available from scamwatch.gov.au website called Where to Get Help, but I'll quickly summarise it up for you. First thing to do is contact your financial institution. They'll do what they can to protect you financially. If you're the victim of identity theft, you can contact ID Care, which is a government-funded service which will work with you through the process. You should report the scam to the ACCC via the Scamwatch website. In Victoria, if you're the victim of fraud or theft, you can call your local police station to report it and, importantly, tell your friends and family about the scam so they don't become victims too. If you know people who are scammers or cyber criminals, you can contact us at Crimestoppers and let us know what you know confidentially at crimestoppersvic.com.au or 1800 333 000. Thank you for listening to us today and thank you so much again to our guests, Jane Welsh and Scott Wall. For more information about this podcast and other podcast topics, visit crimestoppersvic.com.au forward slash podcast.
0: Make sure to subscribe to the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast and visit our website for more on this episode and other crime prevention tips. And remember, if you know something, say something. Report crime confidentially at crimestoppersvic.com.au or by calling 1-800-333-000. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.